Hello, this is Rob Massey, and welcome back to the Planet Jesus podcast. This is episode four, Suffering, the Fine Print of the Christian Contract. In this episode, we will see how suffering is part of the human experience, and despite some biblical examples to the contrary, we will all experience it. The foundation theme of the scriptures relative to suffering is not that we will not suffer, but that we can have hope in God, and that hope will prevent us from falling into discouragement or disillusionment. I hope you enjoy this program. I spent last week in Las Vegas, Nevada at a Gartner INO conference, and by the end of the week, I had become so homesick. I went to the mall and looked for things for my girls, and then finally, after about two hours there, I worked my way to the airport in order to just catch my flight. But, uh, you know, I was six hours early. As I arrived, one of the first people that I met in the terminal was the shoeshine lady. And she asked me, hey, you want me to shine your shoes? And I was like, no, 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 thank you. Make some excuse, moved on. But every time I would get up from my seat in the terminal and walk to the restroom or go get a meal, uh, she was there asking me. And finally, the last time that I passed her, she didn't ask me again. But I looked at her out of the corner of my eye and and paused, and she looked up, and I said, well, if I had cash, I would do it. I, I never carry cash. And she says, well, let me shine your shoes. If you don't like it, then you don't pay me. But if you do, then you can go down to the... ATM and get me some money. I noticed by her accent that she was not from America originally. And then as she shined my shoes, she told me her story that she had, these are her words, won the lottery. Now, apparently in Nigeria, there is a lottery that people can apply to to get work visas in the United States. This woman had won the lottery and she was shining shoes in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, if you've not been to Las Vegas, it is teeming with people. They're up all hours of the night. There's so much energy, people spending money, hundreds, thousands of dollars lost at the roll of a dice. I watched it happen. So with that in my memory, juxtaposed with this woman sitting here from Nigeria who won the lottery, and she gets to come to America and shine shoes in the Las Vegas airport. I was shocked. She told me about leaving her seven children. She talked specifically about her daughters, Rachel and Anna. And I considered her condition and the displacement of wealth that was going on around me, and the, the difference, the situational difference was stark to me. It was like the poverty and the want, however much hope she might have been filled with, was testifying against all the people who were losing thousands at the tables and the slots. It was surreal. As she finished up and did an amazing job on my shoes, I went down, I got money out of the account, brought it back to her, and wished her well. 
On the heels of meeting this woman in the airport terminal, I randomly came across David Platt's Secret Church, episode number 18 on YouTube. He said that 96% of self-proclaimed Christians in Nigeria believe that God will prosper them for their faith. And apparently this woman was one of them. She believed that she had won the lottery and that she was prospering. As I talked to her, she said that she sends back any extra money that she has to keep her family fed in Nigeria. It seems to me challenging that their faith would be so highly aligned with this idea of prosperity, that that was what the gospel was teaching, that they would have prosperity, and that the way to do that, the way to get that to that, is to move to America. By the way, half of the self-proclaimed Christians in the U.S. believe the same thing. But what happens? When you, when you believe that God prospers you because you're a Christian, and then it doesn't happen, you may be able to survive. Your faith may be able to survive a month, a year, five years. But continual poverty, continual lack of prosperity, disappointments, when your health fails, those things can become disappointing. You can become disillusioned. And I've seen many Christians in their faith because somebody wasn't healed or they just never gained what others around them had gained. Or I've seen beyond disappointment or disillusionment and a loss of faith, I've seen people in delusion. They are somehow trumping up prosperity, wealth, and health. They make claims about God that they didn't. And even if they are convinced that God has a grander plan, which I believe, by the way, that my suffering has some purpose, but even if a person is convinced of that, many that follow them, particularly our children, particularly those around us that we influence, they might not be able to reconcile our claims with the realities of the world. So being delusional about what God has done and has not done and claiming something that really doesn't exist will make, could have some collateral you know, damage to people around us. There could be some fallout for that kind of delusion. There's a growing discontent with many millennials, most notably, with amassing wealth and things. Notice how many are abandoning the traditions of their yuppie parents to pursue volunteerism and service. Prosperity theology is only partially correct. Time and chance and space will put some of us in a position of prosperity and others by an act of will and positive actions may obtain a level of prosperity. But experience and scripture, which is really a mirror of believer experience, tell us that not everyone experiences material prosperity. One passage in the Christian scriptures claims that after rattling off examples of how God delivered from death and suffering, that some did not obtain deliverance. The mindset of the believer should be one that is personally not overly concerned with possessing or the lack of possessions. And it should never shield its eyes from those who lack or overly esteem those who have. 
The gospel of Jesus is the great equalizer of humanity. Extreme suffering will be eliminated by God through those he's called to join him in his labor to save humanity from systems that produce suffering. So if you're a skeptic or a Christian who doesn't believe that your job is to help eliminate suffering and to patiently endure personal suffering, then don't sign up or do an early withdrawal. Here's the problem. The gospel's multidimensional. It claims that believers will both prosper and that they will suffer. Prosperity and favor are promised on the one hand. If you look at what Jesus says over in Mark 10, verse 29 and 30, he says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. It's interesting that Jesus follows this comment of present age blessing with this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That seems strange to talk about his personal suffering and death just after telling them that they were going to receive so much blessing in this current age. James and John, after right after hearing Jesus talk about his own suffering and the previous verses about him talking about how they would have so much more in this present age, they request to have authority in his kingdom to sit on his right hand and on his left. But Jesus rebukes them, saying that this was something that power-seeking people, that the Gentiles sought after, that the unbelievers sought after. It was not something that his followers should pursue. See, power seems to protect like money and wealth. The insecurity of poverty is not experienced by those with positions in a system that faithfully feeds them. Money, wealth, and prosperity, they're not bad. In the third epistle of John, in verse 2, John wrote, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. So, our prosperity within Christianity, or the promise of prosperity within Christianity, is not just for our soul or our spiritual life, but it, it's a hope in this life. It is not bad to prosper. It is certainly to be desired over deprivation and scarcity. As I stated earlier, our mandate is to help in suffering where possible. The long-range goal is a cessation of suffering and death. There was a poet from the Hebrew Scriptures who wrote the book of Job. And he was grappling with suffering as it occurs in the lives of good people. Like Mary, this Nigerian who had won the lottery 
She had hope. She was a good woman. You could feel her goodness. But what I see her experience is suffering. It's separation from children. It was separation from her land, her family, all the things that she could feel safe with. And here she is in a city that certainly doesn't convey safety. Job's story is tragic. First, you see this kind of strange dialogue between Satan and God, and God saying, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's a really great guy. And Satan says, oh man, you know, it's because of all those blessings. It's all those, the wealth and the health and the prosperity that you've given him. You take away those things and he'll curse you. So the first test comes. Job is sitting there in his home. He gets report of the loss of all of his possessions, sheep, oxen, camels, the loss of his entire family in a tornadic event. Now, what would you feel like if you were sitting in your home one day and you found out that all of your children or all of your family, all of your wealth in a single day was completely eradicated? But it says that he maintained his integrity. Satan then says to God, hey, well, if you touch his health, you'll really get to him then. Because a man can lose his possessions, but if he loses his own life, that's where the real rub comes. So he becomes ill, boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. His wife says to him, curse God and die. But it says that he maintained his integrity and he did not sin with his mouth. He then had his companions come to kind of comfort him in all of his loss. They sat for seven days in silence. But they were armed with the theology of the day that claimed that God would not allow these kinds of things to happen to a righteous person. Remember that the companions didn't have it all wrong. Like most of us, we create frameworks for thinking about the world, but they were not 100% accurate or consistent. Let's look at one of the dialogues between one of Job's companions and Job. In Job 5, verses 11, verses 15 through 16, and verses 19 through 27, you get the sense of what reoccurs almost throughout all of Job in his dialogue with these companions. This was Eliphaz, and Eliphaz said, He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Let's stop there. Really? Uh, Do the poor have advocacy? We can see it every day that the wealthy get off in our legal system in America and, and the impoverished are filling our prison systems for the same crimes. There is an injustice. The the, the poor have no hope. And injustice is speaking out against them every day. So he goes on to say, He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. Again, really? Tell that to the millions of Christians and Jews that died in World War I. 
The story that Dan Carlin tells in his Blueprint for Armageddon series about the Christmas Eve 1914 experience in the trenches of the Western Front, it'll break your heart to see the death and disease and, and suffering that these Christians were perpetrating on each other. Yet on Christmas Eve, the, the idea of peace on earth, goodwill toward men finally broke out of their suffering and allowed them to sing and rejoice for one night together, Germans and British and French. Listen, we're not delivered from war or from power just because we're Christians. We're not delivered from death or because we're Jewish and we believe the scriptures. Eliphaz goes on to say in the 21st verse, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue. That is, nobody's going to talk about you. <laughs> You're right. And shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine you shall laugh. And shall not fear the beast of the earth. You shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying, Job, your children are gone, and your, animal, your, your animals are gone, because you're a sinner. That's what he's saying. You're not righteous, or these things wouldn't have happened to you. Like a sheaf gathered up in its season, behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it is for your good. <laughs> With comforters like that, you know. We never see God or Job in the entire book of Job claiming a quid pro quo system of relationship between God and humanity. It is never that you do this and God gives you this. Neither of them ever claim that. The prologue provides the theme of the book. Will Job's faith endure when he faces trials? His dialogue with his companions seems to kind of keep the question open. Like many of us, when we're going through suffering, you're like, man, I, I don't know about this. I thought this was supposed to be a better walk. Why am I in the condition that I'm in? Why am I suffering like I am? What have I done wrong? Don't we all ask those questions? At times, he seems confident that God has it under control. And at other times, he recognizes the chaos and cannot reconcile it with a God who is in control. He says in Job 9, verses 32 and 33, He is not a man as I am. This is Job speaking. He is not a man as I am that I might answer him. He's talking about God. That we should come together in a trial. There is no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on both of us. You see what Job's trying to do there? He's, he's saying, man, if I had somebody between me and God who knew what I was going through and could understand what God was going through, then maybe somebody could arbitrate for us and we could be reconciled. You see that Job recognizes that God understands his suffering. He concludes that God does understand, but what the poet didn't understand is that God would eliminate the legitimate complaint. That is, that there would be no man between them that could arbitrate. When God sent Jesus as a man, 
He became the connection point between God and us. It's like that song, what if God were one of us? Well, when God sent his son into the world, he had a daysman. He had an arbitrator. He had an umpire that could feel our infirmities. He could feel how we were tried and tested and suffered. The story of Jesus is a story of suffering and betrayal. And God looked at our suffering through Jesus, and he partook in it. Mother Teresa believed, and it was a common belief of followers since the beginning, that, quote, pain and suffering have come into your life as a sign that you have come so close to Jesus that he can kiss you. We do have a fellowship in his suffering, and there are things we can learn. And I know this may sound presumptuous, but I would like to turn her perspective, the perspective of her comments, just a little bit. Pain and suffering were part of life, and so Jesus came to take part in the same, so we would know greater intimacy with him and understand that God understands while we endure our common suffering. It's challenging for me. I'm personally challenged by this message. I have been abased and I have prospered, to paraphrase Paul, personally. And overall, I like prosperity. But I cannot shake my experiences of suffering. When I think of the events of my life and how they shaped me, it was suffering that brought me the greatest insight or development. In a sense, the maxim What doesn't kill you makes you stronger is true. When things are easy, when it's a high of 70 and the wind is at my back, my account is full, the bills are paid, life is good, to quote Nacho Libre. I can not identify personal growth. I can't look back at those times and say, boy, that was a really growth period for me. To provide an example from a natural perspective, when I focus on my physical health, I deprive myself of certain foods. I strain against weights. I raise my heart rate on a bike or a treadmill. When I was completing my MBA, I worked all day and stayed up all night for three years. It was grueling and painful. There were times I didn't want to endure another day. I just wanted to sleep in on Saturday or watch TV with my girls at night. I could go on and on with examples, and you have hundreds of examples, I'm sure. But it's not just the self-inflicted suffering, like school or health, but the chaotic, unexplainable things that deteriorate our health, like cancer or poverty through corrupt governments or drought and famine. These are the things that make us want to rage out against the chaos. It's the unexpected suffering. Both Jesus and Paul suffered, and their response to suffering was recorded. Jesus' suffering was recorded by Peter. He wrote in 1 Peter 2, 21-23, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is God. 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's 1 Peter 4.19. Evolutionary fight or flight tendency is excluded from the believer's experience. We can rage against the chaos. That's our fight tendency. Or we can retreat from the world. That's our flight tendency. But we must remain in our suffering while doing good. The Christian has no other option. We can't fight. We can't flight. We've got to remain in our suffering while doing good. And like Jesus, continue to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. Paul wrote of his own suffering in his second letter to the Corinthian believers. He wrote, A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more, Paul said, gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see the mindset of the believer? Look at the things that Paul was going to rejoice in. Experiences of physical weaknesses, insults or shames, hardships or anguish, persecution and calamities like famine or unexplained disasters. That strikes me as impossible. But as I reflect on it, is it harder to believe that you will be made perfect or mature through these things or that they have no meaning at all? Do they have a meaning? Does suffering have a meaning? Or is there no meaning at all? Is it just chaotic? The idea that there is no purpose in anything leads down some dark paths. But our experience tells us that suffering and hardship create character, strength, and maturity. So here's my challenge. If you're a skeptic, don't let our call to suffering and to help those who are suffering deter you from enlisting in the cause. Our personal suffering and our shared suffering with others will be the foundation stones for our life. The experiences will bring us growth. If you're a Christian, do not be surprised by suffering. Try to avoid that self-inflicted suffering that occurs as the natural consequences of poor choices. But embrace the suffering that comes as the result of your faith or the chaos that remains on our planet. It says of Christ that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so will we. Tell the truth about your suffering, so that those that are following you, or that are under the sphere of your influence, will not become disillusioned or discouraged, or write you off for your delusion. Whenever you enter a season of suffering, commit yourself to growth and learning. God does not bring suffering on you to teach you. Suffering is part of the world. But we can commit ourselves to Him and grow from it. Thank you for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there. 
and you could have chosen any, but I sincerely appreciate your investment in time into mine. The show notes for this and all episodes, and other links to source material, can be found at my website at rob-massey.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to it, rate it, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to help me defer some of the costs, please visit my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash planetjesus. Thanks again for listening.